We're in 1 Peter. That's the sermon series that we're looking through at the moment. And we've found our way to the middle of 1 Peter chapter 2. And uh, and Chris has just got two verses to explore uh, with us. So I'll read them for us now. They're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. And this is what it says. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Father, as we open your word together, we pray your blessing upon us. May we, um, may we see more of your character this morning and show us, Father, what response we might need to make. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Ian. Good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's good to uh, continue in our sermon series in uh, First Peter called Sojourners. And uh, we continue to discover how God wants us to live uh, as pilgrims in this world. Uh, and sometimes, uh, probably increasingly, a hostile world as Christians. In, uh, in his autobiography, Johnny Cash, who, who I keep thinking if Elvis wouldn't have been around, probably Johnny Cash would have been probably uh, one of the most uh, famous uh, songwriters and singers uh, around. But uh, in, uh, in his autobiography, he remembers the special relationship he had with his brother, uh, are there any Johnny Cash aficionados in here? Quite a few. Quite a few. Good people. <laughs> so the rest of you are good as well. <laughs> uh, his brother, uh, unfortunately, died when he was 14 years old. They uh, lived in rural Arkansas, uh, working on the cotton fields, and the family didn't have enough money. And from a very early age, uh, his brother Jack... Uh, had started working in a workshop with wood, trying to um, kind of get extra income to, to, to help the family. And unfortunately, uh, through a terrible uh, accident with a table saw, um, he lived another couple of days after the accident, and then he passed away. But he had a profound influence on Johnny's own life. Jack, from a very early age, announced to his family as a boy that he wanted to become a preacher. And I don't think that was a prize to the family because everybody uh, remembered him for, 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 and noticed the, the strong Christian character that was in him. And Johnny had already looked up um, to his older brother. And this is what he writes in his autobiography. Jack isn't really gone any more than anyone else is. For one thing, his influence on me is still profound. When we were kids, we tried to, uh, he tried to turn me from the way of death to the way of life, to steer me towards the light. And since he died, his words and his example have been signposts to me. The most important question in many of the conundrums and crises of my life has always been this. What would Jack say in this situation? Which would be the way Jack would go? Which direction would he have taken? And Johnny, with his honesty, said, I haven't always gone that way, of course, but at least because of Jack, I knew where it was. We probably have a lot of us one thing in common this morning. Me and you are probably here because of somebody else. Somewhere alongside our journey in life, and particularly in our journey of faith, there was someone. It could have been somebody that was part of our family. It could have been somebody that would have been a total stranger. It could have been somebody that would have been a colleague, a friend. Somebody that was involved in church, a Sunday school teacher, or even a pastor. 
Somebody that profoundly influenced our life in helping us to follow Jesus today. We listen to their words and watch their life, and something was so much ringing true in both what they said and what they did that actually we said, we want to follow Jesus too. Equally true, sadly, is that in this room we all would know of people who carried the label Christian and actually they lived, particularly lived, not necessarily talked. They might have talked a talk but didn't walk the talk. But they lived in such a way that you and I would have heard people say this phrase, if this is what it means to be a Christian, well, I want to have nothing to do with it. And both are true. There are people who, because of their lifestyle, they give this incredible push and evidence towards following Jesus. And there are other people who, because of their lack of backing through their lifestyle, what they're saying they believe are totally off-putting and very often a stumbling block in terms of following Jesus. And this is where Peter is landing this morning. Because I think the, the essence of what he's trying to say in those couple of verses, as he writes this letter to Christians who are living away, who are living in, in, in a hostile environment in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and Christians like me and you, who would have been amongst other people who believed different things and behaved in a different way. And therefore, he writes to them to encourage them. How, with, with that big question that I have, and hopefully you too have, how do I live as a Christian in, amongst other people who don't share my values, don't share my faith, and probably until about, I don't know, five years ago, we kind of all lived in harmony with each other. You have your faith and I have mine, very typically British. But increasingly in the Western world, now it's, No, you can't have your faith. You have to embrace what I say. And if I'm hostile to you and I think different from you, you have to come and agree with me and back what I'm saying. And if you don't, there's a price to pay. So Peter is writing to them, trying to answer that question. How do you live in a way in which your witness in in amongst a hostile situation is actually good and powerful? Peter starts with these words. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I love the warmth of Peter's exhortation, dear friends. That's how a Christian leader, a good pastor, addresses the congregation. Not a bully, not beating them up, not superior. Dear friends, there's a real warmth in what Peter does. But then balance with that... Although you have this pastoral warmth to what Peter is saying, there's weight in this exhortation. He says, I urge you. And the Greek word for it is parakaleo, which is very often the kind of uh, urging that a doctor would give to a sick patient. I urge you to take this medicine. So this isn't one of those, if you feel like it, you can take it. This is imperative. It's absolutely essential. So right from the very beginning, I love the tone that Peter has in which he's he's coming with more warmth, but he's also coming with a sense of weight to what he's trying to say. In other words, okay, we're all, all in this together and it's difficult, but this is also very important in terms of how we live as witnesses in this world. And the first thing that really Peter is saying to them, he says, this isn't home. And it's the second time in the letter, he already reminded them earlier on in chapter one, 
And that's why we call the series Sojourners, people who are pilgrims, people who are on a journey, people who are traveling through. And again, he's giving them that reminder. He says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. That's our identity. It was their identity. And they they needed to remember this. They weren't just the citizens of the place where they lived. They weren't just the son or daughter of the people in their family. In Christ, they have now a new identity. It wasn't their social status, their ethnicity, their particular job or vocation that gave them their identity. From now, once they started following Christ, they were under a new identity. And their identity was sojourners, foreigners, exiles. How do you think it feels to be a foreigner in exile? We all know what it feels to be a foreigner, right? (laughs) All of us have been abroad somewhere else in amongst another nation. And uh, as, as English people, it's, it's the easiest nation under the earth to, to probably go abroad because most likely wherever you go, there's somebody that speaks your language. But imagine that you go somewhere where you, people don't speak your language and they look very different than you and they eat a different type of food and their values are very different. It's hard. It's very hard. And not just the fact that you're a foreigner, but you're also in exile. You're not at home. It's not a, 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 a holiday abroad. This is an enforced exile. Think of a refugee who doesn't flee their country and leave their homeland and everything that they have there because it's nice to do that, but because they have to. Because their life is under threat and they leave everything behind. And that's the identity of those who follow Christ. From now on, they should embrace that. We are not at home here. This isn't our home. This isn't who we are. This is uncomfortable. And that's a very strong reminder because I guess within all of us, really, we want to feel at home and we want to put down roots. And we want to have power, and we want to be liked, and we want to have popularity, and we want everything to be great for us. But somehow, and and the more I delve into this letter, the more disturbed my spirit is, and the more reshaped my thinking is, in terms of what it means to be a follower of Christ in a hostile culture. Because it's not the way I imagined it to be. So actually what Peter is saying to those, you wake up every single morning, And look in the mirror and actually say, this is my identity in my culture. I'm a foreigner and I'm an exile here. I don't belong here. So if me and you ever feel like, man, this is uncomfortable. This is tough. I see stuff in the news. I I, I get stuff that is being said to me. What should be my reaction? Because I have a new mindset and I'm embracing what Peter is saying. I should be saying that's normal. I'm a foreigner, and I'm an exile. This isn't my homeland. This isn't where I am. I have another homeland that I'm going. The one that Christ said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And that takes a recalibration of how we think. And it would have been a challenge for them. And it's got two sides to it. In one sense, there's encouragement. Because if you're finding it tough here, You want to know that there's a change coming, right? And there's something better coming. Well, it's there. So every single time we feel discouraged about another diagnosis of cancer, another member of the family who's dealing with dementia, another relationship breaking down, another stupid ideology being pushed down our kids' throats, and you're thinking, ah, There is a hope. Peter's saying there's a better country. 
that awaits for us. And this isn't home. This isn't it. We are awaiting that place that John describes and says there will be no more crying, no more pain, no more suffering, no more tears. All gone. In the presence of Christ. That's our destination. And that's the encouragement that comes from it. And encouragement should be that it's not unusual. If you feel out of place, it's not unusual, right? Normalize it. Embrace that. It's biblical. There is a sense in which we don't belong here. And the other, I think, aspect of it is we shouldn't try to fit in. And this is a, I'll tell you where this is shown to be really funny. And I was listening to your podcast a couple of weeks ago and I thought, well, that's really perceptive, that. And I've grown through this uh, sort of the, 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 and I'm looking at Mark, who's a similar age to me, you know, uh, and, and Ellie, you know, we've grown through this. And I, I, I vividly remember as a, as a study case, that, that kind of thing. We, we, we are desperate as Christians to be accepted, particularly as evangelicals. We deep down, we know we're an awkward minority that doesn't quite fit in, but we're desperate for acceptance. So in kind of in the 90s and the noughties, you know, we, we had, you know, Delirious was pushing up the charts and we were like, come on, we're conquering the charts. Go and buy the single and push it higher and push it higher and wait for Radio 1, you know, those days, you know, Radio 1 listening, you know, for the, for the chart, you know, and you put your cassette tape in so you can record the different bits. Some of you are nodding, some of you are in denial. And we were like really rooting and he's like, come on, come on, you know, Delirious, you know, we're going to, this is it. You know, and celebrity after celebrity allegedly becoming a Christian. You know, I mean, in, in my naughty days, in my teen years, I used to have a, you're going to hate this. I used to have a poster of Samantha Fox on the back of my door. <laughs> I think mom saw another picture somewhere else and decided it was going to go down. It got replaced with Kim Wilde. A little bit better. You know, but then, you know, news, Samantha Fox has become a Christian and all that kind of stuff. And we're like lapping it up and all the Christian newspapers are all over it. And then it turns out to be fake. And, you know, the tens and tens of celebrities. And we're just so desperate to fit in, to want to be noticed. And I think Peter is kind of flying in the face of that and saying, don't, don't crave that. Don't crave, don't try to fit in with the world. Because if you do, you often will end up compromising. It's very difficult. To become and to live as a foreigner and exile and yet try to fit in and be popular. The Apostle Paul writes about this and the NLT pictures, you know, a little bit better for us. He says, don't copy the behavior and the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn what God's will is for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's the approach that a foreigner and exile would have. Paul is adding to Peter's teaching. He's saying you have to live differently. Don't try to fit in. If you're trying to fit in, you're missing the point. Instead, you have to have a renewed mind that comes from knowing God's word and the presence of Christ and the work of the Spirit in your life. And then you begin to see everything differently. And your values in your life get aligned to your new way of thinking and then the way you react, the things you get involved in, are suddenly going to fall into line with your renewed thinking that Paul is talking about. Don't, another translation famously is to say, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. So Peter is saying, remember your identity. You're foreigners and exiles. That's who you are in this world. You want to live as a good witness? First of all, embrace the truth. But that is true. Somebody once said, the world is a bridge. The wise man will pass over it, but will never build his house upon it. Pretty good advice, that. The world in which we live, for us as Christians, is like a bridge. We'll pass through it. We don't retreat. We don't go all into monasteries. That's not what Peter is writing about. And actually, you know, he could have spared himself all the work and said, all of you, just go in your Christian communities, close the windows, close the door, don't mix with anybody else, don't talk to anybody else, take all your kids out of schools, you know, just don't take any jobs, only work amongst yourself, close of the letter, you know, one chapter, job done. Doesn't do that. 
He talks about Christians who are fully involved in what he calls a pagan society. The second thing that he reminds us that's really helpful here is you're at war. He's talking about the sinful desires. He says, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Just as much as our identity, we embrace that we're foreigners and exiles, we also need to embrace the fact that we are spiritual soldiers. This is the truth. When you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, you should see a soldier. Because that's who we are. Once you begin to follow Christ, you are standing up as part of the kingdom of light who is in constant enmity with the kingdom of darkness. There is no demilitarized zone. There's no middle ground. There's no such a thing. If you're in Christ, straight away, you're declaring, I am at war with the kingdom of darkness. And as part of that, you're getting a t-shirt. And the t-shirt has a big bullseye on you. And from that moment, Satan and your own flesh, your own old nature that Christ is trying to change, and the culture around you. So you've got three enemies. The theologians used to call it the flesh, the world, and Satan. You got, you're getting shot from three sides. That is our identity. That's what Peter's saying. Embrace the truth. So once again, if we're facing difficulties and troubles and, and, and challenges, this is part of our journey in this. I cannot tell you how uncanny it is that every Saturday there's something that just absolutely disturbs my life, particularly if I'm preaching. And there's a particular special sort of Saturday that is prepared on the Sunday before communion. So I had a massive row with my dad, who yesterday was calling mom a filthy cow and a stupid this and a stupid that, and I just... I think this, you know, you get, you, you get this. You get three weeks of patience and three minutes of lack of patience. You know, and I shouted at him. You know, I hope my neighbors didn't hear too much. You know, and felt absolutely terrible afterwards. I mean, he was wrong to say those words. But I was wrong, wrong to get engaged with all of that. But Satan is on a determined war path. And I was thinking afterwards, I said to myself, Christy, how often does this happen on a Saturday? And how often does it happen on a Saturday before communion? Some of you have got your own special brand of Sunday morning kind of stuff like that, right? With your wife, with your kids, with, you know, and it's all, you look back and you're thinking, this is pathetic, it's stupid. Well, why are we having this? But that's how it works. And Peter is saying, remember, remember, your sinful desires wage war. This is no demilitarized zone. We're beginning to understand war a little bit more. Crazy, 21st century, but we're seeing what's going on in Ukraine. And you're thinking, I'm, I'm, I'm beginning to understand what this war things means. Because my generation and probably a couple of generations above me, we don't know what war is like. We've not seen further. be very few people that would have seen experience firsthand. But now we're beginning to get an idea how brutal how horrendous it is. Well, Peter is saying, this is it. This is your spiritual life. And often what we do is we don't embrace the full counsel of God. And we have these shallow ways in which we call people to, to follow Christ. And we have a, a, an evangelistic service. And somebody is preaching some sort of a thing where they say to people, you, you, you know, if you're without Christ uh, and you're dying tonight, you're going to go to hell. Where do you want to go, heaven or hell? Well, like, that's a difficult choice, right? Because there are many people that are going to put up their hand and say, yeah, sign me up for hell. So people put up their hand and say, I, I want to go to heaven. Good. It's a good thing. You also preach an evangelistic gospel often with people and you say to them, hey, do you want a life where your life is better? You have more money. You have more friends. There'll be no more sickness. Everything would be really great. Put up your hand if you want to follow Jesus. Well, tons of people put up their hand for that. He would, wouldn't want to sign up for that. And then after three or four weeks or three or four months of that, people, because they put up their hand and they're sincerely responding to what message they got, 
you know, they prayed a prayer. Jesus comes into their life, and guess what? They get a T-shirt with a bullseye, and he comes. And they're like, what is this? This is not what I signed up for. I signed up for health, wealth, prosperity, many friends, not going to hell. I've not signed up for my life to get absolutely, totally messed up. But that's the normal way. That's why Jesus encourages real carefulness. And he uses the analogy of building a tower. He says, you know, if you want to build a tower, first of all, you work out your cost, you make a plan, and then you decide whether you want to build a tower. Same with following Christ. We need to make not just an emotional response, but an intelligent response in terms of following Christ. Because the truth is, it is the most attractive life, the most rewarding life, the only life that you want to have. But it's a tough life. And we must tell the truth. We mustn't hide it from people. And then leave them surprised and discouraged and disappointed, thinking there's something wrong with them. Nothing wrong with you. Wrong with the person who gave the wrong message about what it means to follow Christ. So Peter is addressing that and he's saying, look, this is the reality. You are at war permanently in this. It starts from Eden when Adam and Eve, as God created them straight away at war. Satan disguises a serpent, comes and undermines both their relationship with God, their relationship with one another. Everything is messed up. Why do we think it's going to be any different for us? It won't. And the scriptures are very clear about that. Paul, when he writes to, I love to kind of add to, 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 to what Peter is saying, add what Paul is saying, because it shows that there are two very different characters, very different styles of writing, but actually they back up the same message. So it's not just... Nowadays, very often people say, yeah, but, and get into whataboutism, and people be like, yeah, but that's Peter, that's just Peter. No, it's not just Peter. It's the whole of the New Testament. When Paul this I'm writing to the church in Ephesus, he says this in, in chapter 6, A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so that you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. And after every battle, you shall stand firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from knowing the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all this, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Same message. We are at war. And Paul this time gives us completing the exhortation that we got from, from, from Peter, he's saying, and this is how you do it. You put on the whole armor. And he goes through every single element of the Roman armor that people would have been very familiar with and they would have understood. And he's saying, just gear up. Gear up because the battle is serious. And you need to be intentional and disciplined and be ready at all times. No demilitarized zone. No peacetime. Always at war. And again, that's a real encouragement of living like that. There needs to be an active vigilance in that. And as a result of it, I would say as a pastoral word, just know your area of weakness. Even the thing from yesterday, just short of short time to reflect on it, but you're just thinking, know your area of weakness. You know, Satan is clever, but he's not that clever. And we may be foolish, but we're not stupid. And actually, if we, if we sit down, if we are proactive, if we are thoughtful, we begin to identify where our weaknesses are, where our breaches in the wall are. What some of the strategies that the enemy is using. It's like military tactics. 
I'm getting old, so I'm getting a little bit fascinated by military tactics. You know, it's a thing that you can study. It's a thing that you can look into. It's not like somebody comes creatively with something new every time. And you would probably realize there are probably people way more versed in this than I am, studying military history, that a lot of the things repeat themselves. And it's something that you can think about and be prepared and anticipate and pray over. And that would be my pastoral encouragement to us this morning. We are at war, put on the armor every day intentionally. And then on top of that, begin to identify where the enemy is hitting you. Pray proactively about that. Pray, almost strike preemptively in prayer before that. Just pray that God would prepare you constantly, your heart. If you know you've got a challenge with impatience, just pray every day. God, I know there's going to be a situation that's going to come because I have a weakness in this. I'm going to be impatient. Help me to be patient when that comes. It's that sense of being prepared and realizing that we are at war. Very much related to this, and I'm not going to dwell a lot on it. I want to make the point, but not dwell on it. You are responsible. So actually what Peter is saying to them, talking about this sinful desires that wage war against us, he says, abstain from them. Abstain from that. There is a personal responsibility. We live in a culture that signs off from any sense of personal responsibility. We love to play the blame game. We love to make it somebody else's fault. It's the empire's fault. It's my mom and dad's fault. It's the school's fault. It's the workplace's fault. It's my family's fault. It's so-and-so's fault. And it's everybody's fault but mine. Famous English writer and occasionally newspaper columnist responded to the question, what's wrong with the world? Through a letter in one of the major newspapers. The problem with the world is I. We struggle to own that. And actually, Peter is encouraging the believers because it's so easy. You know, they could be hearing the message from Peter and saying, oh, we're foreigners, we're exiles. Sin wages war against us. Oh, poor Christian that Peter is writing to you. This is terrible. This is a terrible life. I have the hardest life ever. And he's so tempted to kind of begin to feel sorry for ourselves and think, ah, oh, everybody's got it in for me. I'm a victim. This is terrible. Peter's saying, no, you're not. You've got a choice. You can respond to this. And the response to them is abstain. You can resist it. You're not a powerless victim. It is a matter of choice. This is important to remember because increasingly the, the younger generation are being fed this constant message that it is somebody else's fault to blame. And very often people wouldn't have the courage to stare them in the face and say, no, it's your fault. You, you failed that exam because you didn't bother working hard. You're losing that job because you're not actually showing, you're showing up three hours late. It's not the boss's fault. They haven't got it in for you. It's you that's the problem. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to say that. Because it's always somebody else's problem, not mine. And I'm always a victim. There's always something that is about me. And when it comes to sin, when it comes to this situation of living in a hostile world, Peter is saying, you're not a victim. You're powerful. You can abstain with the power that Christ gives you through his grace, through his spirit, through his word. You can abstain. So our mentality should be that one when it comes to sin of victorious versus being a victim. We've got to be really, really, really careful. Some people misinterpreted Paul's words that he writes to the church in Rome when Paul is talking about his own fight with sin and his own failings. Almost embracing it as a mantra, almost setting it up as their goal and saying, you know what? Because Paul said, woe to me. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I do. Therefore, I can sin. I can give in to my addiction. I can give in to my temptation. Because big mighty Paul did the same. No, no, you're missing the point. That was life under the law. Not life in the spirit. There's a contrast. We need to live with a different mentality. Yes, we will sin. Well, we don't wake up in the morning saying, I'm a victim to sin. Some Satan, come give it to me. Because I'm going to give in to temptation. No. 
I remember Joseph's story. Joseph, out of everybody in Scripture, that's Joseph, Mark 1, Old Testament Joseph. Joseph, out of all the people in Scripture, could have had so many reasons to embrace a victim mentality, right? He was the father's favorite, and he was, I still believe, he was very innocent in sharing the dreams with his brother. I don't think he was a guy with an ego. I just think he was very sincere, possibly very naive, but given his age, probably that's to be expected. So he shared those grand dreams that he had, that God had given him, which were obviously true because we know they are happening. And his brothers end up selling him as a slave. And let me tell you, that was kind of uh, the best option. Uh, Others wanted to kill him. And he ends up working as a slave. So from his father's favorite son, ends up working for a slave as a foreigner and exile in Egypt. If anybody wanted to embrace a victim mentality and a blame game, Joseph would have been it. And he didn't. He ended up working and rising through the ranks in his boss's uh, property and under his boss's business. And his boss's wife, which I'm making a slight assumption that she was him being a rich man, she was a pretty attractive lady, you know, made a pass on him, like really seriously. And I mean, he could have slept with her. He could have had any excuse under the world. He could have embraced the victim mentality saying, everybody's against me. Now I get my chance to do whatever I want. But he didn't. The scriptures tell us that he fled. He ran away. He made that choice because he feared God and respected his owner. He was a man with a fear of God and integrity in his life. He had a choice. The easiest choice for him was to sleep with that woman and have an affair and live and do what his flesh would have wanted. Instead, he chose to do the right thing. He was a good witness. Why? Because he was responsible. And I think we need to have that sense in which we're avoiding the blame game and excuses. I think we need to embrace humble honesty. That's maybe where the start is. And in our connect groups, begin to open up and share about the struggles and pray for one another, but not pray for one another. There's a trend in churches at the moment where it's kind of this sort of full empathy that comes where somebody is sinning, and particularly you see it with men and pornography, you know, and by the way, if you're kind of falling off your seat, it, it's happening. And statistics show that it's happening a lot more than you think it is. And men in pornography, and you get a guy coming to the pastor and he's sharing that he's struggling with porn. And the pastor says, oh, poor you. You know, what a terrible thing. You know, as if kind of they're a victim and they're okay. And there needs to be compassion towards one another's struggles, but a right reaction for a brother in Christ and a sister in Christ when we hear about somebody struggling with sin is to actually react with a sense of compassion and remind them that there's no condemnation in Christ, but also remind them that they're meant to live a different life. Not just pat them on the back and say, go and sin some more. Jesus gave incredible grace to the woman caught in adultery. I mean, there was no debate on that, right? It wasn't just like false accusation. That was real. So he doesn't condemn her, but he also says to her, go and sin no more. That's the right reaction. Where we're encouraging one another and saying, hey, yeah, you screwed up this week. And you know what? We sometimes need to be a little bit tough on each other, mixed with love. Instead of just saying, yeah, 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 yeah. it's all right. Everybody else does it. No, it's not all right. And that applies to every area of sin that we battle with in our lives. And I think that's a healthy environment in a church where we have this beautiful tension between, okay, there's going to be grace because Jesus gives us grace. So who are we to judge and stand in condemnation? But also Jesus calls us to a renewed life. As Paul reminds us, whosoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old things have gone. Behold, all things have become new. So we're saying to one another, yeah, man, I'm sorry. I'm sorry you fell into sin. And we're going to pray that the compassion and the grace of God will wash over every guilt. But also I'm saying, let's pray for breakthrough. Let's pray for a sense in which we're not falling into the same thing again and again and again and again in this vicious cycle. And by the power of Christ and the work of Christ is us. There's that beautiful, transforming work in which every day we're becoming more Christ-like as he takes control over our life and sin begins to be pushed out.
you are responsible. Paul again writes to the Colossians, Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death. That's, you know, that's the kind of, you know, when somebody comes and shares with you about some sin, or maybe you need to apply it to yourself. I need to apply it to myself. You need to apply it to yourself. It's not this there, there. Oh, don't worry about it. Everybody else does it. No. Paul is saying, put to death. What does that mean? Kill it. Kill it. Put to death. Don't play with it. Don't find excuses. Don't say everybody else is doing it. Don't say it's all right. Put to death. Be radical. Be serious. Jesus, when he, I don't know, I don't, this is not meant to be a theme on adultery and sexual sin, but that we go with what the Spirit is saying. You know, Jesus, when he's talking about this, and it's funny, isn't it? He's talking to men. <laughs> There's a reason for it. And he says to the men, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Before that, it was basically doing the deed. Now Jesus is saying, I don't care about just doing the deed. I'm saying, what's in your heart? What's in your head? What's hidden that other people can't see? Where on the outside you can look like you've got it all together, but on the inside is a whitewashed tomb that smells bad. So what's Jesus' solution? He says, if your eye causes you to sin, put it out. Obviously, not to be followed literally. It's a hyperbole. Jesus using it. Please, brothers, if we have a problem with this, do not go and pick up a fork when you go home and put your eyes out. But the message, message is the same that Paul reiterates. Kill it. Put it to death. I've said to my brothers who've got a problem with pornography, if you've got a problem with pornography, get you rid of your smartphone. Pay the price. Access the internet somewhere where you're absolutely definitely sure there's somebody else in the room. Don't give me the, you know, Christian accountability software nonsense and all that kind of stuff. Get a grip. It doesn't work. You can cheat on that. You can cheat on everything. I know plenty of men who said, oh, yeah, I I haven't got my phone, and they run a second or a third phone where they access pornography. We can cheat our way. We've got to be radical. We've got to be really radical and serious about this. Put to death. Abstain. Abstain. That's the word from Peter, put to death, word from Paul. Jesus is saying, pluck it out if it causes you to sin. Last one, you can shine. And this is the beautiful conclusion of this. If you live your life where you realize that you are a foreigner and an exile, if you live your life and you realize that you are at war, that your sinful desires wage war against you, if you realize that you actually have a choice in how you respond to this. You're not just a victim. You can abstain. And as a consequence of this, he says, you do it so that those people who are hostile to you, those people, it says they accuse you of doing wrong, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. That they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And actually what it means, as a result of you embracing this living as a foreigner and exile, as a result of you embracing your identity as a warrior, as a result of you abstaining from sin and choosing to do what pleases God, instead of what pleases the world or the flesh, you will shine in front of those who are hostile to you. So we don't withdraw ourselves. Withdrawal is never an option. Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. And Jesus, when he talks about light, he says, you don't hide it away under something, but you put it in a visible place that it can shine and be seen. Withdrawal is not an option. For those who understand the way of Christ, salt, you don't keep it in the salt shaker, you put it in food to bring good taste. So we are in the world and we're meant to be in the world. We're not meant to retreat from the world. 
And they will accuse you. Jesus again, and he teaches, I'm not going to go there, but he teaches, you look at one of the Beatitudes where Jesus talks about persecution. This is what's coming. This will be happening. Once again, Peter is getting it home. They will accuse you of doing wrong. So when people in our culture are saying about us lies and wrong things and wrong accusations, let's not be shocked and fall of our seats. Because it's what the word is saying. You're all looking doom and gloom now. I did a little bit when I read the letter, and and as it starts sipping into me, I'm like, whoa, this is tough stuff, but it's right stuff. And he says, but in, in the midst of this, this is the beauty, that they will see your good deeds and they will glorify God. So this is what's gonna happen. And I've heard story after story after story of believers who'd been arrested in Romania and put in prisons and savagely tortured and beaten and responded with what Peter is saying, abstaining from reacting like the world would. And some of the hardened torturers you could ever imagine being one for the gospel by seeing their response, by seeing how unflinchingly they refused to betray their peers, how unflinchingly they refused to lie just to save themselves some pain. And as a result of it, with conviction, with nightmares, they couldn't sleep because all they had is this picture of the smiling Christian who was being tortured. And they couldn't explain it apart from the fact that Christ was present in their life. And increasingly, as that bothered him, it, it made them seek to find out what is this Christ? Who is this Christ? How can he change somebody's life to react like that? That's what Peter's talking about. It could be a hostile world, but actually you can have a positive impact and the people watching your life will see you and they will come to glorify God. That's the beauty. They don't, it doesn't say here, Peter, that they see your good deeds and glorify you and say how great you are, how great your church is. No, glorifies God. They don't see us. We don't matter. We're best supporting act. We, we're there in the background. God shines through. The life of Christ is visible. Same happened to Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. They did a great miracle under the power of God in Acts chapter 3, healing the lame man at the gate of the temple. And we go, oh, bring it, God. Bring it. Bring it. I love that. Right? You're not sure. Right. We want to see that. The power of God supernaturally manifested amongst us, right? You got your second chance. There's a few more, amen. We're getting there. We're making progress. But then as a result of that, Peter stands up and preaches the gospel. Because it isn't just about miracles. It is about the one who did the miracle, Jesus himself. And people need to know and be introduced to Jesus and hear the good news. And that's tremendous because people do respond to that. And straight away, they get arrested and threatened. Nobody's saying amen to that, right? It's part of the same package, guys. It's part of the same package. It's in the same scripture, same, same chapter. It's all, it's all there. It's not like separated. And the response when they threatened them and they told them not to speak about Jesus, and again, it's so subtle. You can do whatever you want. You can do your miracles. Just don't speak about Jesus. You can do your good deeds, CFM Church. You can get involved in the local community. You can help the poor. You can, you can run courses. You can do all sorts of things. Just don't mention Jesus. Don't mention Jesus. And he says, when those who were persecuting the disciples, he says, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It was nothing to do with them. It was all to do with Jesus. Actually, what they realized is they were unschooled. And he's kind of go, yeah, sign me up for that. People look at our lives and they think, you haven't got it. Yeah, true. But they see Jesus in them. And that's the life-changing thing. Can I just encourage us, discern what your stand is. Because Jesus said to us, you are the light of the world. He was the light of the world. And now he's saying, now you are the light of the world. And he says, just as much as people don't hide the light under a bushel, but put it on a stand 
What is the standard God has given you for you to shine your life? What is it? Is it your family? Is it your workplace? Is it your bodies that you do your hobbies with? What is it? Where is that place that God has placed you on a stand for the light of Christ in you to shine and be visible and bear that witness to the good news that is in you? Just discern it. The picture that prophetically I had in my mind is that of a lighthouse. Can't see it very well because it's quite dark, but actually that's quite helpful. And I sense that what the Lord was saying to us, this is what I want you to be. I want you to be like a lighthouse. And do you know when a lighthouse was most effective? Help me out because you can see it from the picture. In the darkness. To be really honest with you, a lighthouse in the light be pretty unimpressive. A lighthouse in the dark, very impressive, very helpful. And in order for the lighthouse to function well, prophetically two things for us this morning. Number one, make sure you've got enough oil for the light to keep on going. This was before electricity or solar power. Make sure you've got enough oil And the oil in the scriptures is always about the presence of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Make sure intimacy with God is in the right place. That's what will keep the flame burning bright. And the second thing, probably related to this morning, keep your windows clean. Keep your windows clean. Keep cleaning them. If you're like us, we get a lot of birds doing their stuff. We live not far from the quarry. There's a lot of dust coming. They need to be cleaned a lot. So is with our life. Let's make sure there's always enough oil. Let's make sure that we clean up those windows so that the light of Christ can shine through us in a dark world to those around us so they could find him. Let's stand together. Spirit of God, we thank you that words written on the pages of Scripture Centuries ago, are still true and right for us this morning. Holy Spirit, I sense that the message this morning has been a little bit longer, not through carelessness or waffling, but just quite a few things that you've added in. And I'm praying that as these words hit our hearts this morning in different places, with different situations going on, many of whom I don't know anything about. All I'm asking is, Spirit of God, just do a deep work within us. Thank you that you're speaking to us. Thank you that you want us to shine. Thank you that even though we live in a dark world, we have your light in us. We just come to you and respond to you. We love you, Jesus.